Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 12 to 33. Mark 11, 12 to 33, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Mark. Does anyone have the page number in the Pew Bible? 10, maybe? 717. Thank you. Page 717 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have one of your own. Hear then the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 33. The next day, remember that the day before was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. The next day, Monday, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing the distance in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, is it not written my house? will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple complex. The chief priests and scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Verse 30. Was John's baptism from heaven or from from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because... Everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, 
thank you for Jesus and his authority. Thank you that he came down from heaven as the king. And as we sang, the king is coming. But even before he comes again, we do even now in our hearts and together as a church family, crown him with many crowns. He's the Lord of life, the Lord of love, the Lord who reigns supreme, king of kings and Lord of all lords that was, that is and that will ever be. We praise you for the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus over everything and everyone. We come now to worship him as our great king. We want to abide in him and have his words abide in us that we might bear much fruit to your glory, Heavenly Father. For apart from the Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, Father, if you don't answer this prayer, if you don't help us, we will not grow. And we will not use your word in a way that honors you, but we will use it rather to puff ourselves up with knowledge and pride and actually push ourselves further from you. So deliver us from the evil one. Bring us not into temptation. For your glory, help us to honor you as we study your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a Christian, you might think that Christianity is just about keeping a bunch of rules. That's what Christianity is. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. It's a bunch of rules to keep, a bunch of hoops to jump through. And then if you actually get to keep those rules and jump through those hoops, you get to look down on others who don't keep it as well as you. That's what a lot of non-Christians think Christianity is. Yesterday I had a conversation with such a man, a young man, about that um, at at a wedding party yesterday who thought, Jesus might be true, but Christians are really judgmental. And so, I don't want to keep those rules. Keep your Christianity to yourself, PJ. Thank you very much. But Jesus actually likens Christianity to a fruit tree that he cultivates, and he wants to bear good, tasty, juicy, abundant fruit. In other words, Christianity is organic. It's life-giving. It's actually a life-giving relationship where God gives us life and this life sprouts and grows. And it's not about keeping rules. It's about flourishing and bearing fruit. The Bible calls this spiritual fruit things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What do we call that in Galatians 5? The fruit of the what? The fruit of the Spirit. Those things aren't just do these rules to do it. That grows up in you like fruit. It's organic. It's life-giving. It's God breathing life into us. Like water on the soil and the plant absorbing sunlight and getting strength to bear good, tasty, juicy, abundant fruit. Now, for if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, PJ, you just renamed the rules fruit, but it's still rules. You're saying it's about uh, bearing fruit, but it still sounds like a bunch of rules. You just put a different name on it. Well, I hope to show you from this passage that it's not just a bunch of rules, that it actually is more than that. So here's the main idea of the passage. The main idea is this. Jesus calls his true followers to bear true spiritual fruit as they recognize his kingship. If you have a bulletin inside, you'll see a, a handout for notes. I don't have it here. If you need any, we have how many more copies? Just three. One. We have one other copy or two. If anyone needs a a set of notes, we have a few there in case someone wants to to look on there. It might help you follow along a little bit better. 
Here's the main idea of this passage, though. Again, Jesus calls his true followers to bear true spiritual fruit as they recognize his kingship. They didn't recognize Jesus' kingship here. Let me summarize the story, and then we'll jump into four keys of bearing spiritual fruit. So this is Monday. Jesus had the Palm Sunday riding riding on a donkey. Big celebration. Hosanna, king of the Jews, save us, right? Goes in the temple, goes back home. Next day, he's back at the temple complex. And there he, as he's there, on his way, he's hungry. It's Monday morning. He skipped breakfast and wants food. So he sees a, a, a fig tree with leaves on it, though it's not the season for figs. He's hungry. He goes there because he's hungry and he wants to eat. No food there. He curses the fig tree. May no fruit ever grow on you again. Then he goes on to the temple. He gets there. He starts overturning tables, kicking out the money changers on the temple complex, not letting anyone carry their merchandise through the temple complex. And he says, isn't my house supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations? You've made it a den of robbers. Then from there, the next day on Tuesday, they go back. They go back home that day, come back to Bethany. They go back again on Tuesday. And as they're on their way back, Peter sees the fig tree. And he's like, look, Lord, the tree that you cursed, there's no fruit on it anymore. And then Jesus teaches a lesson from it. After that, Jesus is back in the temple complex, again, holding down the temple complex, not letting anything be sold or bought there, hindering the money changers and the sellers. And as he's there, they challenge him. The authorities of the temple challenge him. What authority do you have to do this? Who gave you that authority? And Jesus said, I'll ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. The baptism of John, was that from heaven or was that from men? They huddle up together. What should we say? Well, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll say, well, John said that I'm the Messiah, so why don't you believe him? So we can't say from heaven. Let's say it's from men. No, we can't say it's from men. If we say it's from men, everyone here thinks John's a prophet. They'll kill us. So they look back at Jesus. We don't know. (laughs) The leaders, right? The religious leaders. We don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that's the story we have this morning. We'll pull out four keys to bearing spiritual fruit from this story. Number one, bear fruit by, if you're taking notes, it says, avoid the king's curse. Avoid the king's curse. Verses 12 through 14. Avoid the king's curse. Now, I just told you a story. Here in verse 12, it says, Jesus went to the fig tree, he was hungry, and he cursed it because there was no fruit on it and he was hungry. Now, this is the only negative miracle that Jesus ever did in the gospel accounts. All his miracles are healing, raising the dead, uncovering blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, healing people from sickness, casting out demons, all good things, all blessings. Here is a curse that supernaturally is affected as he declares it. Cursed are you, tree, may no fruit ever be born from you ever again. Why why the curse? Why a harsh miracle like this? Well, I think we need to ask another question. Why did Jesus even go to the fig tree to begin with? It's not even, it says in verse 13, it's not the season for what? Figs. Figs. If it's not fig season, why are you going to the fig tree 
to even check for figs when you're hungry if you know that it's not fig season. More than that, aren't you the Messiah? I mean, aren't you the Son of God? Don't you know all things? Are you just pretending that you thought there were figs there? Or, you know, what's going on here? So why did Jesus approach the fig tree? Okay, if it wasn't, when it says it's not the season for figs, what that means is that it's not the season for mature, ripe figs. That would come in the summer months. This is around April when Jesus is doing this. This is around Passover time. So we just had, for Jews, they just celebrated Passover this past weekend. It was Passover time. It's not the season for full, mature figs. That's in the summer. But in the spring, around April, May, there would be some edible fig, immature figs, that were still, they, were, they, weren't, they weren't that tasty, but you could eat them. And if you were really hungry, as people did in that day, they would still take them and eat them. Now, Jesus went there because what was the, how was the tree described in verse 13? The fig tree had what? Leaves. leaves. Now this, now not all fig trees have leaves, especially as it's moving into fruit season, but this fig tree had leaves, which indicated that it has at the same time the edible yet not tasty immature figs. So Jesus goes there because there's leaves. Okay, there must be edible figs there. I'm hungry. I'm going to go get some of these figs. He goes there to have some. When he gets there, all he sees are leaves with no fig, no figs. And so, in his, in his hunger, and in his frustration, you might say, he curses the fig tree. Now, why did he do that? Is Jesus just having a temper tantrum here? And he's angry, and he has the power to do something that we can't do? That might be what you think, but there's actually a symbolic meaning behind it. And we're gonna, we'll see it more in the next point, but I'll just tell you what it is now. I said, let's avoid the king's curse. Here's the curse. The tree looked fruitful, but it was fruitless. The tree appeared useful, but it was useless. In other words, the tree is a picture of hypocrisy. In in the Greek word for hypocrisy or hypocrite, it's actually the same word for actor. And when you're talking about someone who's an actor, they're acting like someone that they are not, right? They're in character, right? But they're not that person. And so... An actor is someone who appears to be someone that he's really not. A hypocrite is someone who acts like someone or something that he's not. The fig tree looked like it was fruitful, but it was not. And therefore, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was a picture of hypocrisy. Of appearing to be fruitful, but actually being fruitless. Let me pause here for non-Christians just before we go on. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, PJ, just like I heard yesterday in talking to a non-Christian friend, a new friend I just met, Christians are hypocrites. There are so many hypocrites in the church. They're unloving. He told a story about he was a delivery man at a pizza place. He went to this one church to deliver food. This church ordered 20 pizzas. And so when he went there, as soon as the lady who picked up the pizza saw him, she started telling him that, you know, he's going to go to hell if he doesn't repent, which, you know, biblically could be true. But the way she did it was very off-putting to the pizza delivery guy. He's not a pizza delivery guy anymore, but he was at the time. And he just said, you know what? Christians are so judgmental. Why are they, why are they attacking me? I come here to deliver pizza. I'm just doing my job and you're attacking me? I don't understand. So Christians can seem judgmental. We can seem self-righteous. I'll say we because I'm a Christian. We can seem proud. And we are proud often. And oftentimes we're not listening to people. We just want to say what we think. 
and not really listen to what they have to say. If you're not a Christian, first let me say, sorry. Just need to ask you for forgiveness. We as Christians do sin and we have sinned against God and against you. And even when we sin against you, we sin against God before we sin against you. And you hate it and we get that and we're sorry for that. But God hates it even more. And so we're sorry to God and we're sorry to you. And we would just appreciate if you would point out the hypocrisy specifically that we might ask you specifically for forgiveness. That's the first thing to say. Secondly, though, as much as you hate hypocrisy, non-Christian friend, Jesus hates it more. I mean, what did Jesus do to the fig tree? He cursed it. Jesus curses hypocrites. Jesus hates hypocrisy. You could read throughout the New Testament. The other friend, as I was sharing the gospel with this man, the other friend who's been trying to share the gospel with him said, you know what? I used to think Christians were hypocrites, and then I read the gospel accounts. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I just saw how much Jesus hated hypocrisy. And I was like, what? I thought, I thought Christianity was about a bunch of hypocrites, and here's Jesus denouncing hypocrisy. So let me just say to you, if you're not a Christian, yes, you're right to hate hypocrisy. Jesus hates it too. Don't reject Jesus on account of hypocrisy. And third, Martin Luther King Jr. was in the South, and he was attacked and challenged by a lot of white Christians in the South at the time. And so some people said to Martin Luther King Jr., why don't you just give up Christianity? These are, these are people in your same religion attacking you. Give it up. They're hypocrites. And you know what Martin Luther King Jr. said? He said, the answer is not to reject Christianity. The answer is truer and deeper Christianity. And that's the right thing. So I just want to say, if you're not a Christian, I don't want to make excuses for hypocrisy. I just want to say, the answer is not to reject Jesus and Christianity. The answer is to find out what true Christianity is about. And Jesus hated it, and that's why he cursed this fig tree. Here you have Jesus. Here we have Jesus cursing those who make a show of bearing fruit, but are actually spiritually barren. This is an act of judgment on Israel at the time, the leaders of Israel, and even the temple, the temple leaders. He's about to cleanse the temple. The temple is supposed to be a house of what? Worship and prayer. And now it's a den of what? Thieves. Now, this temple was the most gloriously looking temple. At Jesus' time, King Herod built this temple. It was a magnificent temple in the ancient world. It looked magnificent. It looked powerful. It looked like God's glory was there. And yet, it was barren. It was a wasteland spiritually. And so Jesus, in this symbolic act, shows his curse on them. Now, this is rooted in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 24, it talks about good figs and bad figs. And um, God says this in Jeremiah 24, verse 5. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Like those good figs, so I regard the good exiles from Judah. I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Israel, before Jesus came, he kicked them out of the land because they disobeyed the covenant. And so he said, the ones I kicked out, those are the good ones, and I'm going to bring them back in the land, and I'm going to bless them. But then he says this in verse 8, for those who stayed in the land of Israel, this is what he said about the Jews and the leaders there. But as for the bad figs, so bad that they are inedible, this is what the Lord says. In this way, I will deal with King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem, those remaining in this land and those living in the land of Egypt. I will make them an object of horror and disaster and cursing. 
I'm sorry, a horror of object, uh, an object of horror and disaster to all the kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, an object of scorn, ridicule, and cursing, wherever I have banished them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they have perished from the land I gave to them and their ancestors. Man, that's a strong statement of curse, right? My king, in the, in the line of David, my people, in my land, I will curse them. And they will be an object of horror because they look spiritually fruitful and they are barren. In Hosea 9.10, it says this. I discovered Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor. That's an idol. They consecrated themselves to shame and they became detestable like the thing they loved. They looked like they followed God. They looked like they believed in Yahweh. They looked like they followed the Bible. But they didn't. And they were cursed for it. Micah 7.1, God is feeling sorry for himself. This is what he says in Micah 7.1. How sad for me. For I am like one when the summer fruit has been gathered after gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig, which I crave. What Jesus is doing here in cursing the fig tree has all kinds of verses in the Old Testament about Israel being the fig tree and not bearing the fruit that God expected it to bear. What does this mean for us? Let's not talk about Israel. Let's talk about us. Let's look in the mirror. I'll look in the mirror. Let's all look in the mirror as a church family. Let's do a self-check here. Some of us, from time to time, and some of us more regularly, right here, right now, are pretending to be spiritually fruitful, but in fact, there is no spirit wrought gospel-produced, Christ-empowered change in our lives. We can play church. We can do the right things on the outside and look like a leafy, fruitful tree. But when you go up close to see the tree, you start looking at the branches, there's no fruit. It just looked like that from far away. You can attend church. You can sing songs. You can pray out loud. You can say you love and trust Jesus. You can say you're a Christian. You can say you love people. You can know the gospel and even explain the gospel and yet not really have any true spiritual fruit or spiritual life inside of you. We can be just disengaged bodies physically located in a place at a church building at a time doing a particular external activity while deep down there's no true trust in Christ. There is no true satisfaction and contentment in the Holy Spirit. And there is no real glory of God being savored and treasured in our souls. The dangerous thing is that we can take confidence in our leafy appearance. We can take confidence in our church attendance or our church membership and really believe that we are okay. We can pretend as long as we have this genuine confidence that we're okay before God. And Jesus is emphatically telling us this morning, we are not okay. You are not okay. You're not okay. If you're just leafy on the outside, but no deep repentance and joy on the inside, you're not okay. This picture is a strong picture. So if you're a Christian, here's, here's application for Christians. Christians, let's fear the curse of a fruitless life when we appear to be a Christian. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But then he says this, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. Does that sound like a curse to you? People who say they're branches, 
but they don't bear fruit. They're cut off and thrown into the fire. God forbid that any member or attender of our church goes into the fire thinking they're a Christian. God forbid. God save us from thinking we're okay just because we have leaves. True Christians hear these warnings and they take it to heart. False Christians are more likely to say, that's not for me. PJ, I hear that point right over my head. You're talking about the person right beside me. We Christians need to take this to heart. As a church family, what does this mean? This means we, not, we must not be enamored with leafy appearance either as a church family, right? In our Southern Baptist Convention, we have 16 million members, 50,000 churches, 16 million church members, and, and less than 6 million attending on a Sunday morning. We should not be proud of our leafy 16, 16 million membership in our convention. We ought to grieve and ask God to cleanse us. We need to understand what right fruit is. Conversions, evidence through baptism and commitment to a church family, not merely walking an aisle or signing a card. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not the fruit. You want to see people baptized and committed to a church family. True fruit is Christians loving the word more. Do you see that in our church? Christians repenting more. Christians speaking truth and love to one another more. Christians gospelizing the lost and the saved more frequently. Leaders being raised up in a church. Teams being sent out to plant and revitalize churches. This is the fruit that God will work in a healthy church. We must not be enamored with leaves. We need to pray for fruit. Okay, that's number one, and that's my longest point. Avoid the king's curse. Number two, let's go a little quicker. Receive the king's cleansing. Look at verse 15. So receive the king's cleansing in verse 15. They come to Jerusalem. They're there in the temple complex. They're buying and selling, and Jesus holds it down. He stops everything. He overturns the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. He doesn't let any more commerce happen. No more merchandise. No more selling on the temple complex. He says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the ethnic people groups, but you have made it a den of thieves. This is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. It says this, I will bring them, that's Israel, after the exile, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You don't have to be Jewish to know God. You can come to God in repentance and faith in the Messiah and be saved. It's a house of prayer for all ethnic people groups. Not just the Jews. One study Bible says this. Turning the Gentile court into a marketplace meant... This is why Jesus was so angry. Turning the, mar- t- turning the Gentile court into a marketplace meant... It could no longer properly be the place of prayer for the nations that God had originally intended. Does God love the world? Does He love all nations? How do we know? He sent His only Son. That's John 3. Do you know what John 2 says? Who's the temple? He said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll make it rise. Who's the temple? Jesus. How do we know God loves the nations? He sent a temple. The temple is the house of prayer for all sinners of all ethnic people groups to find reconciliation with God. And yet they have made it a den of thieves. This, is a, this, this idea of a den of thieves or den, den of robbers is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Let me tell you about Jeremiah 7, verse 11. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it here. You could read Jeremiah 7 for yourself. Just write that down and read it later. But here's what they were doing in Jeremiah 7. You know what they were saying? They were saying, this is the temple of Yahweh. This is the temple of Yahweh. This is the temple of Yahweh. Therefore, God won't judge us. 
And then they would live as rebelliously and as proud and as arrogantly and as sinful as they want throughout the week. They'd come back for worship on Sabbath and say, we have the temple of Yahweh. And then they'd live however they want throughout the rest of their lives. And they thought just because the temple was there, they were safe. Safe from their enemies and safe from God's judgment because they had a temple. The temple, in other words, became a good luck charm. People treat religion like that. I went to church on Sunday. God, why 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 are you hating on me? Why is my life hard? I went to church three times in a row, God. Why is my life hard? As if going to church is a lucky charm. We have the temple here. We're safe from our enemies. We can live however we want. We can trust God or not trust God. But as long as we have the temple, we're safe. As long as I go to church, I'm safe. As long as there's leaves on my tree, I'm safe. And that's not true. You have made the house of prayer a den. They have made the house of prayer into a den of thieves. Now, when we say it's a house of prayer, I like that imagery of a house. A house is where someone or something, what? Lives, right? Roscoe's house of chicken and waffles. Anyone been there? It's one of my favorite houses to visit. Roscoe's house of chicken and waffles. You know what? They don't have... I don't, I'm sorry if you're a vegan here. I might offend vegans here, but one time my wife and I went on a date to Native Foods where hundred they had like triple cheeseburgers and bacon cheeseburgers, and I was so hungry, I was ready to eat. And then as we got the food and I got my burger there, it didn't look like a burger because 100% of their food is made from plants. And that was not a burger. It didn't smell like a burger. It didn't taste like a burger. It didn't look like a burger. And um, I had to return it. When you go to Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles, you will not find their native chicken made from 100% plant. And when you go to Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles, you won't find them selling electronics. Why? It's a house of what? Chicken. chicken and waffles. What do you expect to find there? Chicken and waffles. When I go there, I want chicken and waffles with the syrup on the chicken and the waffles with the gravy. That's why I came. That's what that house is set apart for. It's not for electronics. It's not for plant-made chicken. It's for chicken chicken. Right? And when you go to a house of prayer, you go there to what? Pray. Not to sell. Now, they needed to sell because you make sacrifices there. And there were money changers because they had Roman coins and they needed to change it to Jewish money, temple money to exchange without the image of Caesar on the coins. I get that. But it was more than that. When you thought of the temple, you didn't think about prayer anymore. You thought about wheeling and dealing. You thought about where you could get the best deal for your sacrifice. The house of prayer became a den of thieves. Another translation is a cave of thieves, which makes me think of the bat cave. Who runs the bat cave? Batman, right? Imagine the bat cave being used to plot, support, and execute criminal activity and criminal networks all over Gotham City. The bat cave is for fighting crime. It's not for doing crime. It's set apart. It's a bat cave to fight crime. It's a house of chicken and waffles to eat chicken and waffles. It's a house of prayer for prayer. Not for selling. They missed the point. They lost the point. And so it looked good. It looked leafy. But it was empty inside. And so we need to receive the king's cleansing. What does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple, doesn't he? He overturns the money changers. He holds it down and he cleanses them. From their sin, or he tries to at least, at least on the outside. They sought to destroy. Look at verse 18. What's their reaction? What should have their reaction been? 
If Jesus comes to cleanse you, what should you do? Should you receive it or reject it? Receive it, right? Thank you, Lord. I need the cleansing, right? What do they do in verse 18? Then the chief priests and the scribes is what religious people do. They heard it and started looking for a way to what? Destroy. Destroy him. Him cleansing them was an act of war to them. Isn't that the craziest thing? It's like a doctor coming to do surgery on you and clean your wound so he could do surgery and you take him like an enemy. You're dying from this wound. He's trying to help you and you're attacking him. That's how bad they didn't want Jesus. That's how stuck they were to their ways and to their religion that they couldn't receive Jesus. We need cleansing, don't we? And who alone can cleanse us? Jesus. We are the temple in the, in the New Testament, the, the, the churches. And Jesus will cleanse us. We need to receive his cleansing. It says in 1 Peter 4.17, the time of judgment begins where? In the house of God. So let's, as a church, repent for our sins. Let's not be insensitive to our sins as a church. Let's be sensitive to them. Let's confess them. Let's not look at each other and point out where the sin is as a church family. If it's our sin as a church, it's our sin as a church. Let's confess it as a church and let the Lord Jesus cleanse us as a church family. If you're a Christian, you need to receive rebuke and correction from Jesus. When, when Christians take the Bible and correct you, don't look at them as enemies. That's what the Pharisees did. We're not enemies when we correct each other. We're serving each other as family. We're like doctors helping each other out with our wounds. Let's humble ourselves in repentance and trust. If you're not a Christian, I have good news for you. You can have cleansing too. Like the fig tree that was cursed, you can be free from your curse. You know why? Jesus, who cleanses us, was treated as unclean for us on the cross. God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes unclean on the cross so you can be clean before God. The, the fig tree was cursed. Haven't we, aren't we all guilty of hypocrisy at some point in our lives? I, I would ask us to raise our hands, but there's no point. We're all, we all should raise our hands, right? We've all been hypocritical in our lives. So we all deserve the curse. But what does Galatians 3 tell us? Jesus became a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing of God. Here's good news if you're not a Christian. The bad news is God made us. It's not bad by itself, but God made us and we're accountable to him. So in our sin, we're cursed and condemned to hell for our sins. But here's the good news. Jesus came to be a curse for us and became unclean for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, defeating Satan, sin and death, defeating the curse, becoming clean, being declared clean, so that if you would repent from your sins and from this passage, repent from your religion, repent from trusting your religion and repent from trusting your Christian practices and repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you can be saved. If you're a child here this morning, you're not a Christian because your parents are Christian. You're not a Christian because your parents bring you to church. You have to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. And he will clean you and he will save you. Let's go to the third point. So number one was avoid the king's curse. Number two, receive the king's cleansing. Number three, copy the king's confidence. Copy the king's confidence. Verses 20, 20 to 25. So Jesus, the next day they go to... Back to the temple, Peter sees the fig tree and says, look, Lord, it's cursed. And now Jesus is going to use this cursed fig tree to teach a lesson. Now, it's not the lesson I would have taught. 
The lesson I would have taught is don't mess with me. Right? If I'm Jesus, like, wow, look, Lord, the, the fig tree is cursed. What, what does that mean? It means you better not mess with me. Right? Don't mess. That's the message. That's not Jesus' message, though. His message was have faith. You're like, what do you mean have faith? Have faith in God, and you can curse the fig tree too. Have faith in God, you can say to this mountain, be picked up and thrown into the sea, and it'll be thrown into the sea. Just believe, trust that God gives it to you in prayer, and it will be done for you. That's the lesson here. And I would have been scratching my head saying, no, no, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, of course you could curse the fig tree and it'll wither. Of course you could tell a mountain to get up and be thrown into the sea. You're the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. The lesson should be trust in you to, for you to do it. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the lesson. The lesson is you trust God, you pray, you pray that the mountain be moved, and in answer to your prayer, it will be done for who? For you. So, what's this third lesson? To bear fruit, copy the king's confidence. Jesus trusted God would answer his prayers. So what should you do? Trust that God will answer your prayers. Trust that God will answer your prayers. Pray for the impossible, because with God, nothing is impossible. Expect the impossible with God because God is all powerful. Now, you got to ask this question. You got, you're probably thinking this question. Is this a blank check then? One of my friends, or I met him before, I, it's probably presumptuous for me to call him a friend, but uh, Nick Vujicic, who's a, he's a man without limbs. I don't know if you've ever seen that website, Man Without Limbs. He, he's a man who has no arms, no legs. He has a little, a little flipper type leg. And he goes around speaking about God's goodness in his life, everywhere he goes. And so you ask him, you know, you, you, he would say, you know, you're going to pray for my limbs to come back? I mean, it does say move mountains. Shouldn't we pray for your limbs to come back? And he would say, this is my DNA. This is, this is part of God's design and plan for me. So yeah, you could pray that if you want. I'm not praying that. Not because God couldn't do it. And so the point here is, pray, this, this verse is not a prayer for blank checks. God, raise the dead. God, do this. God, give me a million dollars in five minutes. It's not a blank check type verse. So what is it? If it's not a blank check, is it a broken promise? Is it untrue? Is Jesus lying here? Is Jesus wrong here? Yes or no? No, he's not wrong. Okay, good. Some of you at least think, I'll ask you one more time. Is Jesus wrong here? No. No, okay, good. I just want to make sure that you guys are believing in Jesus here. Good. Um, Yes, Jesus is not wrong here, but at the same time, Jesus, what's Jesus' point then? His point is, you're not asking me for things. You know what our problem is? You know why Jesus doesn't qualify it? He wants us to ask him for stuff. Why? Our problem, our problem is that we are either too confident in ourselves or too despairing in ourselves so we don't pray. There's two reasons why you don't pray. Either one, you feel too guilty or you feel like you don't need God. You know what Jesus says? Ask me. When was the last time you spent time talking to me without rushing? Just unhurried, spending time talking to me and asking me for things because you know I love you and you know I will answer your specific prayers because I will do what's good for you. We don't ask because either we have it all together and we're confident in ourselves or we're despairing. I'm so guilty. I'm so sinful. There's no way God will answer my prayers. And yet Jesus is saying, ask. I will answer. Now, well, why doesn't he answer all of our prayers with a yes? It says, move the mountain, it'll be moved. I prayed for a lot of things that didn't happen. 
What do I do? What do I think about that? Well, the Bible does say in James 4, 3, we could ask with wrong motive sometimes. In 1 John 5, 14, it says we need to pray according to God's will. So don't ask for sinful things to happen. Right? If you're saying, God, give me a million dollars tomorrow, and you're asking that not for God's glory, but you're asking that for sinful reasons, that's not according to God's will. So then you're saying, well, God, give me the right motive to ask for a million dollars tomorrow. Right? And make, make, make my heart pure in, in giving me this million dollars. And maybe God will still have to work on your heart with that. But the point here is that Jesus trusted God. And that doesn't mean he'll always say yes. Remember Jesus when he said on, in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine or your will be done. So praying according to God's will says, yes, Lord, move this mountain. Take the cup away. And if you don't, I will trust you still. But I will not stop praying. I will keep coming to you because I'm confident that you'll answer my prayers. So let's pray, brothers and sisters. Let's copy the king's confidence and pray. Here's one prayer I want to challenge you with that I'm praying now for our church. Let's pray for 20 conversions in 2016. We don't have to do that. That's not thus says the Lord. That's PJ's exhortation. You can pray for more. You can pray for less. But let's pray that in the next eight months here, that God will convert people and let us see people get baptized in this church and they would commit to Christ and his church family in following Christ. Does that, sound, does that sound like mountain enough for you? Maybe we could pray for more. Maybe PJ20 is not a mountain. That's like a little molehill. Let's pray for 200. Okay. Let's pray for 200. My point is let's pray and let's see God work. And if God says no, let's, let's praise God for 10. Let's praise God for 5. Let's praise God if he gives us 50. But let's pray specific, concrete. God, we want to bear fruit for your name. We want to bear fruit in our lives. I want to repent more. I want to get over this habitual sin that keeps dominating my life. Help me, Lord. Move this mountain. Be confident that the king will hear you. If you're not a Christian, go in the name of Jesus and ask Jesus to save you, and he will. Lastly, number four. So, avoid the king's curse. Receive the king's cleansing. Copy the king's confidence. And lastly, submit to the king's kingliness. Or submit to the king's kingship. Now, I'm just, for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize this and, and, and then close. But remember, they said, what authority do you have, Jesus, to kick us out? There, there's the question. It's a question of authority. Where does the authority come from? And what's Jesus' answer? His answer is, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? If it's from heaven, then John is from God. And if John is from God, then where am I from? Jesus. Where's Jesus from? From God. Because John vouched for Jesus. If John is from men and John vouched for me, then I'm from men too. I'm not the Messiah. I have no authority. That's the point, right? Do you recognize the king's kingship or not? That's the question. I'm the king. I have the authority to lock down the temple. But do you submit to my kingship and recognize it? Or do you reject my kingship? That's the question. And so what they did was they did not ask an honest question. What was their question? What authority do you have to do these things? Did they want an honest answer? No. They didn't come with an honest question. They came with a suspicious resolution. You know the difference, right? You know when people ask you a question because they really want to know the answer? And then you know when people ask you a question because they want to trap you. Right? What authority do you have to do these things? Remember in verse 18, they wanted to kill him already. Because he cleansed the temple. 
They're not asking a question because they want God's glory, because they want to follow God. They're not asking a question with an open mind, God, lead me. They're asking a question with anger and suspicion and hatred. They were resolved to be suspicious of Jesus. In John 3, the terms are they love darkness rather than light. In John 12, it would say that they love the praise of men more than they love the praise of God. When you're a fruitless hypocrite, you are blind to the kingship of God. And when you're blind to the kingship of God, you can't see where God is coming from because you don't want to see where God is coming from. You know, that's why many churches split. Or even our association, you guys know our, our Southern Baptist Association. Our director was saying one thing, others of us were saying something else, and we're both saying we're from God. So what do the people need to do? They need to discern who is from heaven, whose message is from heaven, and whose is not. What do you need to know the message from heaven? The what? The Bible, the Bible right? You need to have the Bible. But when you are already opposed to someone or something, even without the Bible, you have no more basis to determine whether something's really from heaven or not. They knew that John, well, they, they didn't believe John came from heaven, but they were too scared to say it. In other words, they did not want to receive what God's word actually said. So as a Christian, this means we need to recognize Jesus' authority and worship him as king. But what does this mean for us as a church? Here's my question for us as a church. I'm talking to our church family here. If you're a member of another church, think about this with your church family. Do we as a church family recognize in our business meetings and where our church goes in terms of direction, do we, do we recognize as a church when it's coming from Jesus and when it's coming from men? Do we as a church recognize it? Here's what I want to exhort you with. Don't just listen to what the pastor says. I can be wrong. Don't just listen to what the pastor says. That's not necessarily where Jesus is leading. Don't just listen to what any other member says. They might say, this is how we do church, or this is how we do church, or this is the right way, or this is the right way. We'll all have different opinions based on our traditions and our past and our understanding of God's word. That's okay. That's what a congregational meeting is for. But here's the main point. Listen to the Bible. Let's ask this question. Is it biblical? Is it from heaven or is it from men? Is Jesus leading us according to the Bible or is it the Jesus of our imagination that's leading our church in this decision? I exhort us as a church family. Let us go to the Bible again and again and again for our decisions. And if you're not a Christian, I'll close with this. There's only two ways to live. You either submit to Jesus as king or guess what? You have your own king. And Jesus is the only king who actually died for your sins and will save you from your sins. So I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. Church family, let's be a church that avoids the king's curse by examining ourselves and repenting. Church family, let's be a church that receives the king's cleansing in our lives. Let's be a church that copies the king's confidence in our prayers. And let's be a church that recognizes the king's kingship. Father, take these words, hide it in our hearts, that we would not sin against Thee. And when we sin against You, help us to see it and repent. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You most of all for the cross of Christ, where Your love was displayed in its full magnitude for sinners like us. We pray that we would continue to trust in Christ. Help us, Lord Jesus, to not only submit to and recognize Your kingship, but to love it. You are not only the king of kings, you're the best king. You're the sweetest king.
You're the most lovely and caring and compassionate and humble king. You are the servant king who gave your life as a ransom for many. And so now we gladly entrust ourselves to you. And we pray for our non-Christian family and friends here that they too would this morning entrust themselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.